Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And we, as always, are excited to bring you the news. Derek, let's start with so excited. Yeah, always. Let's start with the thing that uh, that we're we're all as a society kind of uh, crashing into the brick wall of, and that is climate change. And could you tell us about the new IPCC report on climate and the UN report on water access? Uh, yes, uh, there's a couple of uh, not great reports that came out of the UN this week. Uh, as you say, one came out of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, concluding that we're on course to hit a 1.5 degree Celsius average global temperature increase by the early 2030s. Uh, so congratulations, uh, we've done it. Uh, it's it's pretty much locked in at this point. Uh, 1.5 degree temperature rise over pre-industrial averages it was the stretch goal that the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement set to try and avoid. Uh, it is a point where climate scientists would argue that a lot of the really bad effects of climate change will become sort of locked in. Not to say that there's any real line, you know, of point of no return. It's always uh, worse. Like every little bit of extra temperature increase uh, makes things worse. But 1.5 degrees was identified as a milestone that it would be best to avoid. Paris, of course, the Paris Agreement adopted a two degree temperature increase as its actual more realistic threshold. Uh, I don't want to ruin anybody's day, but we're probably going to blow through that too. The report does say that there is a 50% chance to avoid the 1.5 degree threshold, but uh, basically it would require an end to all new fossil fuel projects. Uh, There would have to be a a global commitment to cut greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030 and to stop uh, adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere altogether by the early 2050s. The Biden administration is already opening up new parts of uh, Alaska to oil drilling. So uh, suffice to say, that's not going to happen. The second report, as you mentioned, uh, is the UN's World Water Development Report for 2023, uh, estimating that 26% of the world's population now lacks access to clean water for drinking and 46% uh, lack access to proper sanitation. Uh, This works out to about 2 billion people for the former Uh, and about 3.6 billion people for the latter. Uh, The report suggests that uh, increasing urban water demand, uh, in addition to climate change, uh, mostly in in developing nations, uh, seems to be driving this problem. Uh, The editor-in-chief of the report, a man named Richard Connor, uh, told reporters earlier this week that it would cost about $600 billion uh, to $1 trillion U.S. dollars per year to fix this problem. So needless to say, uh, that's not happening either. The developed world is not going to fork over uh, that kind of money for a humanitarian need that pre- pre- predominantly falls uh, on the developing world. Uh, I, I We could note, I guess, uh, by comparison that the U.S. military budget is about a trillion dollars a year, will be uh, as of next year, especially if you throw in ancillary things like the nuclear 
uh, weapons budget at the Department of Energy. Uh, so it's not that we couldn't do this. It's just that we're not going to because then we wouldn't have, you know, F-35s and drones and aircraft carriers and stuff. So it's a real, uh, real dilemma. But Biden's the most progressive president of my lifetime. Hey, well, uh, he may still be. I don't know. The pickings are are pretty slim in that regard. So, uh, yeah, you know, who knows? Good times. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, just everyone, before we're engulfed by climate catastrophe, be sure to subscribe to American Prestige. All right, Derek, let's talk about Yemen. We've got good <laughs> news and we've got bad news. Yes. So the good news is that on Monday, the warning parties in Yemen, uh, according to the UN and the Red Cross, reached agreement on a major prisoner exchange. Uh, involving uh, 887 people. Uh, I don't know uh, how that breaks out. The the rebels, the Houthis, claim that it's uh, it breaks down to 181 people that they're freeing while the pro-government coalition releases 706 people. Uh, I don't think there's been any confirmation of, of that from uh, the government side or uh, any of these third parties. UN negotiators had been pushing for a much bigger prisoner swap and all for all basically uh, prisoner swap. But that was, you know, I would say probably a little bit unrealistic. Uh, this, this could be the first step toward that goal of getting all the prisoners exchanged. And then that in turn could lead to uh, a revival of, of the peace process. Now that said, uh, the bad news is that there was uh, a renewal of fighting in Ma'rib province in central Yemen Later, later in the week, this province has been, Mount Rib has been a flashpoint or had been uh, before the, the fighting died down during last year's ceasefire. It has remained more or less dormant, even though the ceasefire expired in October. Uh, but at least 16 uh, combatants were killed. Uh, again, I don't know the, the exact breakdown uh, on the government slash rebel sides. Uh, another 20 were wounded media accounts, both the AP and AFP are reporting that it was uh, a rebel attack on a government position in southern Mount Rib province that started the fighting on Tuesday. Uh, it continued through Wednesday. It's obviously uh, impossible to know at this point whether this is just an isolated thing or the start of some more sustained fighting. It's the latter. That's very bad news for uh, any chance of, of peace talks, uh, but it remains to be seen. From one grim situation to another grim situation, Derek, let's talk about Israel-Palestine and particularly the new bill that legalizes the old settlements that were previously left out on the West Bank. Right. So uh, the Israeli uh, parliament on Tuesday partially rescinded uh, a law that was passed in 2005, closing down all of Israel's settlements in Gaza and four settlements in the northern West Bank. This was part of uh, Ariel Sharon's disengagement plan. Ariel Sharon was at that time the prime minister. Uh, he sought to withdraw Israel from the Gaza altogether uh, and to reduce uh, some of these kind of fringe settlements that were really uh, difficult for Israel to to oversee or to secure in the West Bank. Um, Tuesday's legislation uh, only deals with the West Bank settlements. It does not deal with the Gaza settlements that presumably remain off limits, although I have already seen uh, far-right Israeli politicians talking about the dream of one day resettling Gaza. So that's that's uh, may only be off limits for now. It's a big win for the settler political movement, which more or less dominates Israeli politics at this point. It drew 
the rare, uh, real serious rebuke. I mean, you know, nothing more than rhetoric, really, but it, it, it's prompted the United States uh, State Department to summon the Israeli ambassador in Washington to lodge a complaint. This is not something that happens uh, very often, needless to say, in the U.S.-Israeli relationship. And Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel, insisted on Wednesday that he doesn't have any plans, his government doesn't have any plans to reopen those four settlements that were, uh, you know, uh, in theory at least, uh, reopened in that legislation or that, you know, settlement was permitted once again in those uh, places in in Tuesday's bill. So uh, he, whether that's, you know, whether this is just sort of a response to this kind of hostile reception from the U.S. and Netanyahu's feeling a little bit, uh, disconcerted about that, or maybe he wasn't, you know, this wasn't in the cards yet anyway. Uh, I suspect it's, it's a, a play for time that eventually, you know, now that these settlements have been, uh, reopened in a legal sense, they will be opened in the full, uh, active sense at some point. Uh, but, you know, maybe that will take a little while to, to affect. Uh, the other thing that Netanyahu is dealing with this week, uh, is, uh, some hostility from Jordan. Uh, his far-right finance minister, Betzalel Smotrich, appeared at a conference in France uh, where, uh, among other things, he uh, basically denied the existence of the Palestinian people, which is uh, lovely, uh, and also apparently uh, appeared uh, on a stage with a flag. Now, I haven't seen this flag, but it showed uh, a sort of greater Israel that I, uh, apparently included all the territory of Jordan, uh, in addition to the West Bank and Gaza. So lovely stuff for the for the Jordanians. Uh, the Jordanian parliament voted to expel Israel's ambassador from Amman. Uh, I believe that was on Wednesday as well. Uh, that's only a, a, an advisory vote. They can't actually, they don't actually have the authority to tell the Jordanian monarchy to do really anything, let alone uh, uh, something like that. So it's probably not going to happen. Uh, but this is still a relationship that, Netanyahu's government is starting to fray. Uh, it's one of traditionally, historically, one of Israel's closest uh, relationships in the Arab world, and, and it's clearly uh, not not doing so well right now. The things that happen when your prime minister is afraid of going to jail, one can only hope that Trump is elected again. <laughs> Jesus. Um, <laughs> now, let's turn to some actually good news and tell us about what's going on in Ethiopia uh, in terms of progress in implementing the peace deal. Yeah, there have been a couple of developments this week. Um, you know, people, we've, we've kind of followed this story. There's been, it's been slow going in some aspects of the, uh, November peace deal that the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, uh, reached. But there were a couple of, of significant developments, related, uh, developments this week. The Ethiopian parliament voted on Wednesday to remove the TPLF from Ethiopia's list of terrorist organizations. Uh, that was something that was stipulated in the peace deal, uh, and is a, was a step toward what happened on, what has happened on Thursday here, where, uh, the Ethiopian government and Abiy Ahmed, the prime minister, have, uh, uh, agreed to the formation of an interim government for the Tigray region. Uh, it is led by the former spokesperson for the TPLF, Getachu Reda, uh, so, you know, clearly could not have been set up if the, the TPLF was still designated as a terrorist organization legally. That wouldn't have been possible. Um, again, so, you know, these are these the two sides have missed some deadlines 
uh, in the process of implementing this peace deal, but it does generally seem to be moving forward. The TPLF has uh, been disarming. The government has been, uh, the Ethiopian government has been expanding access for basic services and communications uh, and humanitarian relief throughout Tigray. Uh, you know, all again is stipulated uh, by the peace deal. There are still some issues related to. Uh, big issues related to things like the Amhara regional security forces still occupying uh, the disputed territory in western Tigray or, uh, you know, which had has a, at one various times in history been part of Amhara and been part of Tigray. So uh, that's that's still going to be, I think, an issue to, to watch moving forward. Uh, the Ethiopians also were not happy with the uh, State Department's human, human Rights Countries Report, which came out this week and uh, accused the Ethiopians along with the Eritrean military, which participated in that conflict, and the Amharans uh, of committing uh, essentially crimes against humanity. Uh, they were quite displeased with that. I don't think it's going to mean anything in terms of the uh, relationship between Ethiopia and the U.S. Both sides seem interested in trying to uh, resuscitate that. It did uh, suffer somewhat uh, over the course of the uh, the war as the U.S., and I would say tepid, tepidly uh, criticized the Ethiopian government for the way it was prosecuting the conflict, but nevertheless, was uh, that was enough to kind of fray the relationship. I think both sides are looking to to get back on a, a, a better page. Thanks, Derek, and we'll, of course, keep you all updated with what goes on in Ethiopia. Let's move on now to France, where a friend of the pod, Emmanuel Macron, is facing some disagreement, I would guess, from the French populace. I hard to believe because he's he seems like such a nice guy, um, you know, kind of and man of the people for sure. Uh, um, yes, uh, so Macron has for some time been pursuing uh, a, a quote unquote pension reform, basically raising the the French retirement age. Uh, this is he's been deeply committed to this. He says it's the only way to save the the pension system because, of course, we're not uh, going to consider like raising taxes on anybody or anything like that. Um, uh, it, it got to crunch time last week. Uh, the, there was supposed to be a vote, uh, parliamentary vote on Thursday to finally, you know, decide what was going to happen with this thing. Macron, uh, instead decided to invoke uh, article 49.3 of the French constitution, which, uh, obviates the need for a vote and just imposes by fiat, uh, whatever piece of legislation is, uh, is under consideration while also, allowing opposition parties a window of time in which to file no confidence motions against the French uh, government, uh, in this case against the government of Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne. I, I'm not even going to try to do a French accent there, sorry. Uh, they, the opposition parties filed two no confidence motions, and the idea is that if one of, if, if any of these no confidence motions succeeds, uh, not only does the legislation then fail, the government falls and you have to go back to the drawing board uh, completely. Uh, both of those no confidence motions wound up failing uh, on Monday as uh, enough of the French Republican Party, Les Républicains, uh, voted with Macron's government uh, against the no confidence. One of them only felt like nine votes short, but still, you know, that's enough. To, uh, to make sure that this reform uh, is implemented uh, really without a direct parliamentary vote, but nevertheless, uh, legally under you know, the French system, uh, this is something, this is a maneuver that you are permitted to, to do. 
there were already protests, huge protests uh, going on fairly regularly against this pension reform package. There have been uh, mass strikes, walkouts uh, nationwide. There, are, you can go online and find images of garbage piled up on the streets of Paris because sanitation workers are among the uh, the sectors who have just walked off the job over this this reform. Uh, as you might expect, Macron's decision to uh, just bigfoot this thing into place without even uh, allowing a parliamentary vote has not gone over very well with the people who were out in the streets protesting. There have been uh, several nights now, straight nights since uh, this since Macron invoked Article 49.3 um, of, of very heavy protests, uh, a lot of clashes with police, uh, the usual package of uh, tear gas, water cannons, that sort of thing, riot police in the streets. Um, and that's ongoing as far as I know. I mean, it's reporting in kind of uh, the time when Thursday's protest, I guess, would be kicking off or Thursday night's protest would be kicking off in France. And I haven't uh, seen any you know, uh, reports of it, uh, but I don't see any reason to think that they've uh, decided to take the night off. So I think that's uh, that will be continuing. Uh, I don't know what the end game is here. I mean, uh, the, the intention, I think, is for Macron to, to give up at some point to say, you know, you can't continue to have a society functioning without people working in these very basic sectors like sanitation. Uh, but uh, Macron doesn't uh, strike me as the kind of guy who really cares if there's garbage in the streets of Paris as long as he gets what he wants. And what he wants is this uh, pension reform. I, I, I put reform in quotes, but uh, that's what he calls it. Derek, maybe the real garbage is Macron. <laughs> Somebody needs to take out the trash. <laughs> Somebody yeah. needs to take out the trash. Uh, thank you very much for that. Let's move. I'm, on. I mean that only in a figurative sense. I'm not calling for any. Please don't. You're don't not calling for any garbage men to literally gar- uh, take out. To uh, literally take out toss Macron. them in a dump. Yes, no, no, we are not calling for that on American Prestige. Thanks for that clarification, Derek. Uh, let's move on to Russia and Ukraine, and let's start with the ICC, which, of course, the United States does not belong to, charging Putin. Uh, we don't belong to it, but we sure do like it when they go after people who don't aren't on the U.S. Christmas card list. Uh, yes, the International Criminal Court on Friday issued a number of arrest warrants for senior Russian officials in connection with uh, the deportation of thousands of Ukrainian children to Russia uh, since the beginning of Russia's invasion last year. Uh, and that includes the most senior Russian official of them all, Vladimir Putin. Uh, the news was uh, hailed in, in the Ukraine uh, and kind of friends of Ukraine uh, world, not so much in Russia. Uh, this isn't something that, that has any meaningful import. Uh, Putin is, is uh, the chances of Putin winding up in the dock at The Hague uh, facing a, uh, an ICC trial are infinitesimal. Um, it does open him up to theoretically arrest if he should uh, travel to any ICC member state. There is a technical, again, theoretical uh, obligation for ICC members to arrest anyone wanted by the court if they come into their country. Uh, in practice, as the president of Russia, he doesn't have to go anywhere, really, if he doesn't want to. There are maybe you know, one or two countries that uh, he would... Uh, need at some point to, to go to, and they're not ICC member states. China would be the one that comes to mind. 
but otherwise, you know, leaders will come to him uh, if necessary. He can also, if he absolutely, in the you know rare case that he absolutely must go to travel to an ICC member state, he can obtain uh, assurances ahead of time that he will not be uh, arrested. This is something that's been done in the past. Omar al-Bashir, the former president of Sudan, used to you know travel around Africa and uh, never had any problems. There were controversies sometimes when he would go to uh, member states and they would not arrest him, but he always uh, managed to, to keep moving on. Uh, so there's precedent for that as well. Uh, it's possible that Western governments could tie uh, the arrest and, and Putin's arrest and prosecution to any future sanctions relief, uh, but then they would basically be acknowledging that, that sanctions are not about uh, ending the war in Ukraine. They're about achieving regime change in Russia, which I don't think uh, Western governments are ready to acknowledge yet. Uh, there is a symbolic embarrassment here, but it's really not uh, practically anything that that I think would would must Putin in any way. I don't know, Derek. I think we're going to see Putin behind bars before the year is over. Uh, let's okay, talk. Sure. <laughs> let's talk about the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which has just been renewed. Uh, yes, uh, the parties to the initiative, which are essentially Russia and Ukraine, although Turkey uh, and the United Nations are sort of the mediating guarantor parties. Uh, they agreed on Saturday to renew the initiative for 60 days. Uh, now, the Black Sea Grain Initiative came into effect last uh, July, I believe. It was initially active for a 120-day period. It was renewed at the end of that first 120-day period for another 120 days. Uh, so this is a, a much shorter, half, uh, half as long extension, uh, which almost nobody wanted, uh, but the Russians insisted upon uh, because they remain unhappy with the way that the initiative has been implemented. Uh, the, Gra- the Black Sea Grain Initiative is supposed to include guarantees for Russian food and fertilizer exports, uh, but the Russians feel that they have not gotten uh, their end of the bargain, that all it's done is uh, basically enable Ukraine's grain exports. Uh, the Russians uh, continue to argue that they're food and fertilizer exports are being throttled by U.S. sanctions uh, or Western sanctions more broadly, I guess. Uh, The Biden administration always insists in response to this claim that uh, it exempts things like food and fertilizer without mentioning that uh, these sanctions do things like, uh, you know, bar transactions with entire banks or entire financial networks. Uh, The U.S. has has included the main bank that, that finances uh, Russian food exports in its sanctions list, so it it, it prevents these these transactions from happening uh, through other means uh, without acknowledging that that's what it's doing. Uh, so the Russians have, you know, made it clear that they will not, or they've they've said it's, at, at least they've insisted that they will not uh, renew the the initiative again unless they see some very specific steps being taken by the U.S. and other Western governments uh, to lift sanctions on those institutions that are involved in uh, the food and fertilizer trade. Uh, I haven't seen any impetus uh, from the U.S. to, to do anything like that, so uh, we'll see. Uh, now let's move on to Bakhmut and uh, Crimea. Yes. Uh, so this is just a little update on the fighting. Again, uh, as it's been for months now, the, the focus has been on Bakhmut. 
there was a claim made by the uh, the the head of the Wagner Group again, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, who's been very active in the the Bakhmut fighting, uh, that his forces are now in control of seventy percent uh, of that city. I don't see any reason to doubt this, although it hasn't been uh, confirmed anywhere else. Uh, Prigozhin sometimes gets out ahead of of everybody when he makes these sorts of claims, but uh, eventually he is. Uh, either proven to be correct or reality catches up to the claims that he's making. Uh, so I don't, I don't see any particular reason to, to think that he's lying when he says this. Uh, the Ukrainians have already established potential fallback lines outside of Bakhmut. So, uh, you know, they, they can probably maintain their defense even if they're completely driven out of the city. But, uh, you know, it will be a, it will be a setback for them to some degree, and the Russians will, uh, you know, certainly claim a, a major victory. How major it is in reality, uh, I think, remains to be seen. Uh, the other thing of note that took place this week: there was apparently a drone strike early in the, early in the week on Monday uh, in Crimea. Ukrainian gr- drone strike uh, that uh, the Ukrainians say targeted a stockpile of Russian cruise missiles. Uh, and destroyed it. Uh, Russian officials are claiming uh, instead that the strike hit civilian targets, but uh, didn't cause uh, much damage. There was one person they say was wounded in the the strike. Um, so that again, I you know is uh, it's it's always worth noting when the Ukrainians are able to strike a target in Crimea. I guess because that's uh, you know until relatively recently has not been something that's uh, been in their range of their capabilities. So, uh, again, something to watch for. Uh, also, in terms of capabilities, I should mention this is just out today as we're recording this. Uh, the Slovakian uh, government says it has uh, sent the first four uh, of a batch of 13 MiG-29 fighters uh, that it's planning to provide to Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainians already fly MiG-29s, so these will just be kind of replacements, or they could be used as spare parts if they're not necessarily in the best of flying condition. Uh, it, it, it nevertheless, you know, I, I feel like the, we're sort of uh, working out the logistical model that would need to be uh, involved in, say, the U.S. providing Ukraine with F-16s uh, at some point down the road, which I ma- maintain is... Uh, almost certain to happen, even though the Biden administration keeps saying, no, no we're not going to do that. Agreed. Um, thanks, Derek. Let's move on to our final segment, and that has to do with the new Cold War. And let's start with Xi Jinping visiting Russia. She stopped by on Monday for a three-day uh, meeting, or well, three days of meetings with Vladimir Putin and various other Russian officials. You know, this this is a big deal uh, in Western media. It was played up as a you know a huge thing for Putin, a huge kind of diplomatic coup for Putin to show that uh, China's on his side, and you know isn't that swell? And uh, for for the U.S. government, these meetings always uh, provoke uh, this kind of howled, anguished response, like you know Russia's breaking the rules or something. Uh, or Russia and China are breaking the rules by having a relationship with one another, uh, a relationship that has been intensified, uh, I should say, by U.S. hostility toward both countries and sort of a mutual, uh, their mutual enemy, uh, uh, mutual enemy type of relationship. Uh, 
but you know, nevertheless, the, the U.S. government always reacts badly to these sorts of trips and and uh, you know acts like uh, this is some horrible affront to to diplomacy or something. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know how much they actually accomplished. Uh, they did talk about. Uh, some business deals. They talked about uh, a natural gas pipeline. It's called the Power of Siberia 2 pipeline that's proposed uh, to run through Mongolia to bring Russian natural gas to China. Uh, uh, presumably that will move forward. China is always interested in uh, Russian natural gas. Uh, they also talked about Ukraine to some extent, but they mostly seem to have talked about Xi's proposal for a peace process uh, which has been, you know, which he, you know, his government released weeks ago and, and hasn't really gotten a lot of traction. It's not uh, the most specific uh, kind of detailed proposal. It's more of a, a set of principles or a position paper than uh, anything actionable. But, you know, Putin expressed a lot of support for this. I suspect some of that was meant to flatter Xi, who is, you know, clearly the, the senior partner in this relationship. Uh, there was no point at which... And again, I think this reflects the the disparity in power. There was no point at which she was ob- obligated to express any overt support for Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And this is something that he has not done uh, in over a year now, uh, probably because it would uh, somewhat undermine his claims to respect national sovereignty, which is one of the principles of his uh, foreign policy rhetoric. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, there's no, again, still no evidence that China's, uh, planning to get directly involved here in supporting Russia or even that it, uh, you know, and hasn't even expressed any kind of, uh, rhetorical direct support for the invasion, even as it's, uh, you know, certainly stressed that the, the Russian Chinese relationship remains strong and vital. Um, and the U.S., you know, can can uh, I guess suck on this to coin Tom or to to borrow Thomas Friedman's phrase about the Iraq War uh, appropriately enough since it's the twentieth anniversary. Uh, that's that's pretty much all this was, I think. What about Kishida Fumio's visit? Yeah, you have to juxtapose this uh, with the the a trip by the trip by Japanese Prime Minister uh, Kishida Fumio. Uh, to Ukraine on Tuesday. Pointedly, I think the juxtaposition was uh, intentional. Uh, Kishida was the last of the G7 uh, leaders uh, to to who hadn't visited Ukraine at some point. So, uh, you know, there was some keeping up with the Joneses, maybe, or you know, need to demonstrate his uh, support for the the Ukrainian cause. Uh, but I think the timing is is unmistakably was unmistakably meant to position him as as the alternative pole to, to Xi, uh, who was in Russia at the time. Um, Kishida has moved Japan even more, I think, strongly, more firmly into the U.S. orbit, especially uh, when it comes to, to the response to, to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which isn't something that necessarily has a lot of direct relevance to Japanese interests. Nevertheless, he has been, you know, full bore in terms of supporting sanctions, imposing Japanese sanctions against Russia. And he's becoming increasingly involved, I would say, in kind of serving as a an emissary of the U.S. position in the new Cold War in the Indo-Pacific and kind of rallying countries uh, against China. For example, 
uh, his stop before he visited Ukraine was India, which I don't, again, I don't think is a coincidence. Uh, this is another country that the U.S. is, is trying to pull into the anti-China uh, block that it's assembling. Uh, he and uh, Narendra Modi had a nice, seemed to have had a nice meeting. He invited Modi to attend uh, the G7 summit in Hiroshima in May. Uh, and talked about plans for an Indo-Pacific initiative, economic aid, security, uh, infrastructure support. So a lot of things that uh, could be viewed as kind of a, providing an alternative to China. He also apparently invited uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, to the G7 uh, summit. Zelensky said he would uh, attend virtually, but he, I don't think he's going to go physically. Derek, thanks very much. Let's end on Tsai Ing-wen's visit to the U.S. And could you just explain briefly who she is? Uh, yes. Tsai Ing-wen, the president uh, of Taiwan, uh, is heading to Central America. She's taking a trip that will begin later this month uh, and then coming back in, in early April. This has it, it been uh, rumored for some time that, that she would make uh, a couple of stopovers in the U.S. It's sort of traditional... Uh, for Taiwanese presidents who aren't supposed to have any official contact with the United States under the terms of the the One China policy and all the things that the Carter administration really worked out uh, in the late 70s with Beijing. Uh, nevertheless, it's it's sort of traditional that that Taiwanese presidents, when they do travel to uh, countries in Latin America that still have diplomatic ties with Taiwan, will stop in the U.S. and take kind of unofficial meetings with U.S. officials. This is something that's been uh, rumored for a few weeks now, uh, and in particular, uh, there have been rumors about her uh, making a stopover in California and meeting with uh, the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy. Uh, They're still not talking about whether that's going to happen. There's no confirmation of it. Um, But the fact that that they've now released her itinerary and she will have a stopover in California, uh, I believe on the way there, on the way to Central America, uh, strongly suggests that some sort of meeting will happen. McCarthy wants to demonstrate his toughness and uh, bona fides on on Taiwan the way that Nancy Pelosi did when she traveled to Taiwan last August. He himself has talked about going to Taiwan, I think, both the U.S. and Taiwanese governments would prefer that he not do that. Uh, you, you may recall that when Pelosi visited in August, the Chinese government responded quite harshly with economic penalties. Uh, it you know, conducted these very provocative military exercises very close uh, to Taiwan. So, you know, had a lot of people kind of uh, nervous about that. I, I think... Uh, the governments here would rather avoid a, a repeat of that. And there's really, uh, you know, much less cause for uh, Beijing to react in, in, in that to that degree uh, about a meeting between Tsai and McCarthy that would take place in the U.S. Uh, so I guess the hope is that this will, you know, kind of mollify McCarthy and maybe encourage him not to make a trip to Taiwan. Uh, but who knows, he may still want to do that anyway. Uh, nevertheless, it's uh, you know just another uh, another day in paradise. Episode, another day in paradise. <laughs> another episode in the new Cold War, like sands through the hourglass. These are the days of our lives, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. We're all dust in the wind. Uh, Derek, yeah. thank you so much, everyone. We'll see you soon. Bye bye. Bye.